Well, good morning, Branch Church. Everyone here, all of our church family online, it's a blessing to be with you all this morning. Oh, I love it. TLC here. So as a parent, you've probably been there. And if you haven't, you'll probably get there. You come into a room and you find a big mess. You know it was not there an hour ago because you were just there. But now it is. And so you call the kids in and you ask both the kids, okay, who did it? And in unison, they look at you and they say, wasn't me. And you go, well, let me replay this back. I know it wasn't me. Your father's at work. We don't have a dog. And if we did, the dog's outside. He's locked out. The dog couldn't have done it. So it had to be one of you two. So let's ask it again. Which one of you made this mess? And they look at you in unison. I don't know. It wasn't me. What do you do as a parent? Do you discipline them both until one of them squeals and rats out the other one? You just let it go and the mess is there on the ground and you just do nothing about it? Or do you take the responsibility on yourself even though it's not your mess and even though you have 10 other things you need to get done at the same time? When people don't take responsibility, the weight of that shifts to somebody else. And that weight often can be burdensome. I think this is what was going on for the church here in Ephesus. They were beginning to take on a responsibility that wasn't necessarily theirs. And so Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, and he's going to teach the church in Ephesus and the church at large today that widows are first and foremost the priority of the family. It's the family's responsibility to care for them. And then those widows who are true widows, and we'll describe that, true widows who don't have families, then they become the responsibility of the church. So he's going to draw this line today of responsibility. So one, widows are taken care of, and two, the church does not take on a responsibility or a burden that's not theirs to bear. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 1. Now, the first two verses actually fit better with last week's sermon. Had I known that, and I was a little more ahead, I would have done it last week. So I'm going to kind of put these with last week when we talked about exercising godliness, but the majority of our time will be with widows beginning at verse 3. So we're going to start here in verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, he says this, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Paul tells Timothy not to rebuke, that is in a harsh and a sharp way, but rather to exhort or to encourage the men within the church. As a minister, as a, as a young minister, Timothy likely is in his 30s. He's going to have to correct people who are older than him, men in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and so forth. And I don't know if you know this, but for a younger man to correct an older man is very uncomfortable. And for an older man to be corrected by a younger man is probably equally, maybe if not more, uncomfortable. So we have this kind of weird situation here. Can you imagine a young pastor pulling aside an older man and saying, come here, come here, come here, listen up. You need to get your act together, old man. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. And that's highly disrespectful can't talk to people like that. Look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 with me. You can turn there or you can see it on the screen. Proverbs 15, verse 1. 
It says this, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A harsh word, a sharp and a harsh word doesn't work for at least two reasons. One, it's disrespectful. When you're disrespectful, it doesn't encourage people to want to follow along or to listen to you. Unfortunately, I think we live in a culture that is highly disrespectful. We disrespect our elders. We disrespect older teachers. We disrespect older generations. I confess that I felt this way as a younger person. We are the smartest thing to ever come on the earth. (laughs) Sliced bread had absolutely nothing on me and on us. What we're really thinking is that we're just technologically advanced. But that doesn't mean we're necessarily smarter, wiser, or more virtuous. Not at all. In fact, the more that I read and study the past, I go, wow, we don't know. I don't, I'll speak for myself. I don't know anything. These guys are so deep, so smart, so reflective, so wonderful. Right? Disrespect, it doesn't go a long way. Secondly, a harsh word is just throwing gasoline on a fire. It doesn't comment at all. It's just going to make it worse. So he tells Timothy, don't rebuke in a harsh, in a sharp way, but exhort, that is encourage, respectfully encourage as if it was your dad. And he probably has in the back of his mind, maybe Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, the first commandment with a promise. But it doesn't just stop there. As a minister, Timothy is going to have to correct all sorts of people, younger, older, male and female. And so he looks now to the younger or to his brothers. He says, younger men treat them as brothers. It can be easy if you're older to think that you are superior or better than. As a minister, he cannot think that way. You're not better. You're not, they're not inferior to you. You're on equal terms in Christ's eyes, even if you have this position where you get to teach and lead. He says, older women, treat them as mothers. If you reflect on everything your mother's done for you, it's pretty profound. FYI, next week is Mother's Day. So don't forget, here's a good prep for that. Your mother carried you nine months. That alone is worthy of Mother's Day. That is a lot of work, back pain, sleepless nights, having to sleep funny, having your bladder stepped on. I've never had my bladder stepped on. (laughs) Women, how does that feel? Don't answer. It doesn't feel good. It's a terrible feeling nursed you, got up at night with you, cared for you, took you to the doctor, did everything. Without moms, I was talking with someone else recently in the church, and they said, without women, without moms, we'd all be dead. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. The idea is they do so much. They do so much. They're so essential. They're so, it really baffles my mind. My wife, the gifts and what she brings into the parenting relationship is so profound. When you think about all that and you calculate it, what do you end up with? Respect for your mom. And then you take that respect and we want to give that to the other women within the church. He says also here, younger women as sisters in all purity, probably speaking of sexual purity. I think for guys, we all probably have or know of a female in our life that we look at and we just, we love them. We want to protect them. Nobody touch them. You're the big brother. You're the uncle. You're the dad, something like that. You want to take that type of attitude and you want to translate that to all the other women in which we interact with, especially in the church, showing the utmost respect for them. And they need that and they're worthy of that. 
As a minister, Timothy is going to deal with all ages, ranges, male and female, and he has to do it simply in a respectfully encouraging way. He is an extension of the grace of God to people, people who are real people with real emotions, real feelings, real heartaches, real wounds. And he gets to be that touch of God to them in their life. And so he tells Timothy, and if I were to add this to last week's sermon, remember we talked about exercising ourselves toward godliness. This additional exercise would be the idea of if you're going to correct or even interact with people, do it in a respectfully encouraging way. Amen? We are now going to transition to our main topic of widows this morning, verse 3. He is going to address the church and the families, and he's going to go back and forth. So I'll do my best to separate those two so you can see who's being told what, because lines of responsibility are being drawn here. Verse 3, to the church, he says this, honor widows who are really widows. To give honor is a proper recognition but it also includes material support and financial support to them. We're talking about full on everything they need, taking care of them. Verse four, but this is to the families. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety, right? This religious respect, faith in God at home and to repay the parents for this is good and acceptable before God. Families first, your priority is to the widows, and then those who are truly widows to the churches. Now, the question for the churches is what? Who are the true widows? He's going to give seven characteristics to help Timothy figure out who are the real widows that the church should take responsibility for, beginning here in verse 5. Now, she who is really a widow, the first one here, and is left alone. She is all alone. She has no one else to care for her, no family. Secondly, she trusts in God, better translated, hope. Hope is the idea, again, of expectation. There is a confident expectation she has that God will take care of her. She's looking to God to ultimately meet all of her needs. Thirdly, she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She expresses her hope in prayer. She looks and depends on God, trusting him in prayer. There is a great faith and godliness about a widow who truly is a widow, Verse six, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Fourth characteristic is that she is not to be living a self-indulgent, going after pleasure type of life. For those who do that, who live in pleasure, it says that she is dead while she lives. How can she be dead while she lives? Dead, probably speaking of cut off from God, not in relationship with him based on the way she's living her life. Verse seven, back to the families. And these things command that they may be blameless, right? Families first take care of them so they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now this verse is challenging. And I ask the question, what is worse than an unbeliever? An unbeliever rejects Christ, will pay for their own sin. They will spend eternity from God in hell because they refuse the salvation, the only way to be saved, which God has provided through Jesus. What's worse than that? I think this might be the answer, at least the heart's intent here. Even unbelievers take care of their parents. 
Even pagans and unbelievers know you're supposed to take care of your family. And if you can't even do that, you're worse than them in that sense. I couldn't help but think of, when I read this, um, those who have had children and, and abandoned them. And I just go, man, it really hits home when you put it in terms like that. To have a child and just abandon it. Where's the love? Where's the faith? God can redeem that. But that act alone, it's a heavy verse to take on. Verse 9, he goes back to the church. Characteristic number 5. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. So he says an age limit, 60. Why 60? In this time period, that was considered when someone hit older age. And at 60, it was much harder to remarry, and it was much harder to take care of yourself as a woman in this culture. They did not have the job opportunities, the trade opportunities that men had in this time. Characteristic number six, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. We're looking for marital faithfulness to her husband. And the last one, the seventh characteristic he gives here is this. She is well reported for good works. What are those good works? He's got a bunch listed here. If she's brought up children, now it seems that he starts from inside the home and kind of works his way out, starting with her immediate responsibilities to then outside and the way she extends that responsible love towards other people. If she has brought up children, if she's lodged strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, probably speaking of weary travelers, Christians coming in and out of town, she opened up her love and home, washed their feet kind of a thing. If she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. When it comes to taking care of widows, the responsibility first is at home. We are called to take care of our parents and our grandparents to repay the love they gave to us, and this is good and pleasing to God. The church, however, is not to get mixed up and to take on that responsibility. The families are not to push off that responsibility, but the church is to come alongside and take care of those who truly have no one to take care of them and then to provide for their material their financial, and their spiritual needs. God has a very special play in his place in his heart for widows because they are among the most vulnerable in society. He has such a heart. Look in scripture with me, Psalm 146, verse 9. Psalm 146, verse 9. It says this, the Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow, but the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. When it comes to widows, God relieves them from the struggles and the pain in which they feel. Go with me to Deuteronomy 10, 18. Deuteronomy 10, 18. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. God relieves the widow. God administers justice for the widow. Go with me to one more, Psalm 68, verse 5. This is one that you'll probably recognize. 
a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God relieves widows. He administers justice and fights for them on their behalf. And he is a defender of widows. Scripture paints a picture of God on the throne multiple times. Ezekiel 1, we see this great picture of a blue throne over this thin ice or this ice layer. And underneath it, wheels within wheels, picturing God's throne everywhere. Uh, Underneath these animals, underneath with the four faces, picturing God reigning over all the creatures of the earth. Isaiah chapter six pictures God high and lifted up on his throne, the train of his robe filling the temple. Revelation four pictures God lifted up, majestic, beautiful, and sovereign over all of creation. Now keep that picture in mind and go with me to Psalm 113, beginning in verse four. Psalm 113, beginning in verse four. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Those pictures describe that. The Psalms are merely reiterating and singing that. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, yet who humbles himself? He comes down to behold the things that are in the heavens and that are on the earth. Although God, far above all power, rule, authority, and creation, he stoops down and you know what he sees? He comes all the way down just to look at the heavens, all the way down just to look at the earth. And you know what he sees? He sees women who have lost their husbands and he cares deeply for them and also for men who have lost their wives. He cares about their financial burden. He cares about their loss. He cares about their grief. He cares about their next steps. He cares that taken care of and he wants us to do the same. How great is God to stoop down and to care for such vulnerable people? Amen. Amen. I love it. Now, I confess, I haven't sat and contemplated widowhood. I haven't experienced it personally or seen it in my life. And so I did some research this week. I found out we have quite a handful of widows and widowers in our church. So I I was able to speak with seven of them and hear their stories. I laughed. I tried really hard not to cry sometimes. I was inspired by their faith. I was wowed by their their testimony. So I took that and I combined that with some, some statistics on widowhood and I put it together into an acronym. The acronym is WIDOW. And the reason I'm giving this to you like this is so you can digest the amount of information that is here. In fact, it's so much information, I'm going to have to read it to you because I, could not, I couldn't remember it. W for widows stands for wounded. There can be smiles on the outside, but we can still emotionally still feel the pain on the inside. One woman said, I, can still, I'm, I still feel stunned over the reality of my husband's passing. Another one said that we thought we had five to seven years left. He died eight weeks later. Another said it was devastating. You lost a part of you, if not half of you. Someone who did things for you. Someone who did things with you. Someone who did things because of you, they are now gone. You have to create a new normal. You have to have a new way of thinking. You have not just this loss, but a connection of many losses, and you have to grieve all of these. It's hard to make peace with the why questions. The first six months felt like a blur. The first night I went into my house, I locked the doors and the windows and I put my face into the pillow and I just screamed. 
I went and deposited the life insurance check. And when I walked out, all I wanted to do was be homeless with him on a corner. I didn't want any of it. I still want to hold hands with somebody at Disneyland. The first few years hit like waves. It just hits you. You're, at, you're in the store, you're at Kohl's, and you hear a, you hear a cowbell. And you're man, my husband loved cowbells, that SNL cowbell skit. I'm going to buy him a cowbell. And then you remember, but he's not here. And you fall apart, and you have to call someone to come get you because you can't get out yourself. You get stuck on freeways, have to pull over and just cry. It hits you. Uh, but you gotta, you got to grieve. you got to cry. You feel better the next day, knowing that you just can't fix life. It's a constant, everyday decision to get a new normal. Uh, the first holiday, the first everything is hard. He did the bills. Going to the gravesite, it feels like you're reliving it. It settles in your heart. You never get rid of it. It's always a part of you. I think about him all the time. I'm always feeling the loss. And the loss can take many forms. Sometimes you're watching a TV program. And I miss my husband. He was such a trivia expert. He always had an answer to my questions. He may not have always led, but he always had my back. Widows are wounded. They're deeply wounded. The Holmes Ray stress inventory tells us of the events in life in which someone can experience. The number one stressful event you can experience, hands down, is losing a spouse. I didn't know that. Many believe the first few weeks or months or years the most difficult. However, the deep sadness, whether you expect it or you don't, it marks you for the rest of your days. Widows are wounded. I stands for independent struggles. And this is more on the practical side. I, I saw a lot of practical themes and struggles that widows have in speaking with them. I have no one to, to fix things around my house. No one to bounce things off of. I got to get tires. What tires do I get? I need a mechanic. My husband used to fix everything. There are rats on my hill. Husband, where are you? It can feel scary taking care of things on your own. There's a new status here that with it comes a lot of mental and physical stress. Widowhood is more common than you think. There's roughly 13 million widow widowers in the United States as of a couple years ago. Of the 13 million, over 11 million of them are women. The average age or the median age in which people become into this new state is around 59 and a half years old. Life expectancy for, for men is about 84. Women, you got us beat, 86. Way to go. If you say, let's say that 60 years of age is when it happens, and you live to life expectancy, you might have 20 to 25 more years of life on your own that you have to figure out a brand new normal. That's a long time, especially if you've been with someone for so long. I'm not trying to make you feel bad or hurt you today, anyone. I, I'm trying for us, the whole point of this is, like, what if widows could speak to the church? What would they say? And so I'm trying to gather that and share their stories so we can begin to feel God's heart for them and love them the way that God does. My hope is that this sermon would change your heart in the way that you see them and the fruit that we would bear in reaching out towards them. Statistics on widowhood age 65 and above say that after five years, uh, close to 10% of them live below the low income threshold. So there's a great financial burden that can happen. D stands for desires. I want to be a part of a community of all ages. I don't want to be part of just a group that's singled out. 
I asked the question, how do you want people to bring up the loss of your husband or the loss of your wife? It can feel like a dance. What do I say? When do I say it? How do I say it? It's a little different for everybody. One woman shared how she went into the store they would normally go to. She said, no one would look at me. No one would ask how I'm doing. She says, let me cry and keep the conversation going. Don't try to fix it. I want to tell the story of the afternoon in the hospital. I want to read the cards. I want to go through the cards in which he wrote. They want to hear from you. Don't want people to be afraid. Don't act like they didn't exist. It's good to bring them up. When you do, whether overtly or implicitly, try. Try to do so at every good opportunity. Also be very careful of how long it's been, how they passed, and who you're speaking with. Don't say, I know exactly what you're going through. That's offensive. If you have had loss with something besides a spouse, don't compare it. One shared that you may say, like, death hit me personally and it hurt. How, how is it hitting you? That seemed to be a more tactful way of bringing it up. O stands for ongoing loneliness. The first thing, I lost the person that I needed to share with what I was going through. I had a couple friends and just kind of fell away. They didn't know what to say. Relationships change after this. You're missing them in the chair next to you. You miss the things they would say that would be intimate just between the two of you. You do survive, but it's lonely. The problem is being alone, wondering why God makes people go through stuff like this. I had someone to talk to and lean on for all those years. My mate, my lover, and all of a sudden I have no one to talk to. This uh, gentleman said that I talk to her all the time. Kiss her goodnight. I kiss her good morning. I tell her where I'm going and when I'll return. He says, I'm sure God is out there laughing at me. But you don't know until you experience it. Be nice to have someone to live with for companion's sake. I wouldn't recommend living alone. There's a thing called the widowhood effect that says that after one spouse passes, there's a chance that the other one could pass quickly, months, weeks after they've passed. I think this happened to my great-grandparents, my, my mom's side, my great-grandmother passed and great-grandpa followed pretty quick. This article says this, but, but widowhood does not have an end date. Just because the surviving spouse made it through the first month or year does not mean they're not still battling loneliness and isolation. Last W stands for what can you do? <laughs> when a woman described how someone would come to her house, get in the car, we're going for a walk. We're going hiking, get in that car. We're going kayaking, get in that car. So much drops off after the first few weeks. The intentional reaching out to begin with is good, but it's important to keep doing it later on. Remember that our life is long-term differently even if we don't show it. We're doing okay, but the chair next to me is empty. And I took that and thought that would go for the chair at home, watching a movie, being at church, driving somewhere. They're no longer there the way that they once were. Be specific. Don't just say, call me when you need help. They're not going to call you. That's my, my impression. Be more specific. I'm going to the store tomorrow. Can I pick up anything for you while I'm there? They're much more likely to give you an item or two 
and to do that. If you keep doing that, they might even give you the whole grocery list at some point. <laughs> hey, I'm free this Saturday. Is there anything in your house that I can fix up, tweak, take away, haul away for you? They're much more likely to say, yes, I have something for you when you're that specific. I also want to highlight there was great testimony to God's faithfulness, to God's love, and to God's church and the lives of the women who shared. I would say this, let's begin by noticing them. Let's begin by noticing. We have probably at least 10, if not more, widows and widowers in this church. Didn't even realize it myself. I'm sorry for not seeing you. Let's pray for them. Let's continue to be their friends and include them in the bigger church activities and the things that we do and not isolate them to here, you're in this little group and that's all you get. No, they're much more bigger and important and want to be a part of things, I think. Let us, above all, let them know that God loves them and we love them too because God has given us his love for them. Mark your calendars. June 23rd, International Widows Day. I look, it doesn't look like the U.S. celebrates this. We celebrate a lot of stuff. Like rolling dice. No, I don't know if that was the one. Like flip a coin day. I mean, we got just about anything. I was like, how did Widow Day not make it on there? But the United Nations established this, I want to say in 2011, somewhere around then, and it was to draw attention to the plight and to the need that widows have around the world. I think this is a great chance for us to pause, remember, pray for, especially those in countries who do not have the things that we have. Send a card, give a hug, send a text, but don't let it stop there. Let it be continual. Build a relationship, love them, love on them. Widows, for the testimonies I shared, I hope it was did justice for you and, and was encouraging to you. And I apologize if anything came out in a way that you did not feel that. This would be a great place to end the sermon, don't you think? I do too. But Paul doesn't end it there. <laughs> so we're going to pick up in verse 11 together and we're going to finish the sermon. There's one more area he brings up to Timothy. It's younger widows. And there's a problem with them. And so he has more specific guidelines on how to deal with this. He says, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton, there is a new King James word for you. Wanton is strong physical desire. When they get this strong physical desire against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Some really strong language there. I think a situation will help paint it a little better. And then we can see the language is not as strong as you might first think. So younger woman, she gets married. And unfortunately, she loses her husband. She's now a widow. She has no inheritance. She has no money. She has no kids. She has no family. What are her options? I'll just go get a job at the local store. It didn't work that way. Professions and trades were not set up for women to be able to do this. It was very much a male-dominated society when it came to the workforce. Really, the only job she might be able to do right away is prostitution. But for, for our sake, we'll say she doesn't do that. She runs to the church and she says, take care of me. I will give my whole life to the church to serve her. And you take care of all my needs in return. And she makes this vow. Six months later, she meets a guy. This is the guy, man. She leaves the church. She breaks the vow. Described as a first faith here. I don't think she's breaking her faith in the sense where she doesn't believe necessarily. Maybe it's going that far. It seems to be more of a vow or a pledge that she's making. 
and she comes now to this guy and she runs off and gets married. On one hand, it doesn't seem so bad, right? Like, way to go. On the other hand, the fact that she made the vow and came to the church looks like she maybe is now using the church. I was just using you in my younger state, not really thinking through, maybe thinking I'm going to run back. And so Paul maybe seems to see a lot of this. And so he's like, let's, let's refuse them for the sake at this time in which they are doing that. He's going to give some more thoughts here. And besides, there's other issues going on with the younger widows. They learn to be idle. Idle is inactive. They're not coming over and being active for the church. They're coming over and getting taken care of. And then they're just going on and doing some other things. What things are they doing? They're wandering about from house to house. They're not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies. They're meddling in other people's affairs, saying things which they ought not to say. It seems Paul wants to protect the church from taking on this responsibility for people who might come and use it when there's much better things they can be doing. And so he's going to point them to these better things. Therefore, I desire that the younger women marry. Go, get married again. I will pause and say this. Be very careful how you say that to someone who's lost a spouse. I don't think Paul's in sin here. I don't think he has a bad tone. I'm just saying for us in our culture, one thing one of the women told me as I spoke with them in the interview, shouldn't call it an interview, just a sharing. She said she asked a group of women who have married a second time which husband they will be buried with. Talk about things you never think about, right? Until you get into that situation. I'm like, I don't know. What did they say? And she said, at least for her group, they all said the same thing. I would be buried with my first husband. So be careful before you say, just marry again, right? It's like that connection, that oneness is very deep. And to just cast it off, really, just be careful how we say that. That's what I'll say. He desires them to marry. And the heart, I think, and the principle behind what he's trying to get at is moving them forward in the best positive godly way. Not taking them on in a way that's not going to be good for them, but let's move you on towards the best godly way for you to live in this culture at this time. And that's where I would land on a principle maybe for contextualizing this. Encouraging people to proactively, best you can, one step in front of the other, move forward into serving God, walking with him, and doing what is best so you don't become inactive. So you don't become gossips or busybodies and so forth. I desire that they marry, bear children, manage the house. The idea behind these things, right, is give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Verse 15, for some have already turned aside after Satan. How have they turned aside? It doesn't tell us. Maybe some of the ideas we just described. Maybe prostitution as well. Hopefully not. Verse 16 is a great summary. It says, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Family is the first responsibility to take care of the widows and widowers. The church is a responsibility to take on those who really need it, who have no one else to take care of them. All in the package of this, encourage them to take proper steps forward to what is best for them, that they can walk with God. Amen. Sorry for the heaviness in which you might feel, but hopefully that sinks into a really deep, powerful way that we go, wow, God loves widows. And so do we. Amen. I want to pray for the widows in our church. I want to pray for the widows around the world in the church who have much more difficult plights than we have. Ancient times versus today, it's very different. The need was probably much greater 
back then than it is in the West, especially in the United States, right? Women today have more opportunity to work again or to inherit homes or inherit money. But regardless of the difference in the cultures, God still loves them the same and he wants them taken care of. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to those that you relieve, you administer justice for, and you defend widows. Lord, would you give us a deep heart, not just an emotional past, but an actual heart that says, yes, Lord, I want to pray for them. We want to love them. We want to serve them. And Lord, we thank you for the widows and the widowers that are here. Lord, would you continue to fill them with your spirit? Would you continue to minister to them in the exact way that they need in their loss, helping them to grieve, yet knowing your presence? Let it be a deeper walk in knowledge and love of you. Lord, comfort, Lord, the grief. Comfort those, those stressful waves when they hit. Lord, bless the memories that they could speak of them with joy. Lord, bless us to know how to serve them as a church. And Lord, for those uh, internationally who may have really even more struggles when it comes to financially and no one to take care of them and they need the church, Lord, help the church to do that. Lord, provide for them. Thank you, Lord. We're reminded of your teaching, Jesus that the birds don't store away, the flowers don't dress themselves, and yet you take care of them. How much more would you take care of us? How much more will you take care of widows? Thank you, Father, for coming all the way down to the earth, stooping in such a way, even though you're present here, and stooping in such a way that you care for us and particularly for widows. Lord, we praise you. Help us to worship you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.